What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry, and we have a fun edition of our podcast today. Uh, I have the luxury of having Dr. Michael Blum on. First of all, welcome, Dr. Blum. Excited to have you here today. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here with you. Well, I wish we could be doing this in person, but uh, maybe next year in Austin. But I do want to do a few opening notes. And first of all, I'm going to give a nod to some of Dr. Blum's team, Holly Havorka and Mary Beth Chalk. Um, we helped create this session that we're calling the Renaissance of Digital Health, Plague Technology and Capital. And I'm going to do a little bit of reading because I want to make sure I get this right. The, the team did such a gorgeous job putting this together based on a brainstorm we had where we really decided, you know what, this is like... The, an analog to what happened back in the 15th century. So the wealth from commerce in the 15th century in Florence uh, allowed patrons such as Lorenzo de Medici to financially support scientists, artists, and intellectuals. Sound familiar? Their combined talents replaced the outdated model of thinking and ushered in a period of history challenging conventional wisdom and encouraging the first use of experimentation to solve problems. And this came on the heels of a major plague, if you remember. Today, the scale and safety concerns of COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic has served as a catalyst for challenging the conventional wisdom of healthcare delivery and also encouraged, if not forced, the use of experimentation. This accelerated adoption of telemedicine and the rise in virtual care technology have resulted in more convenient and informed care for patients. So nice silver lining amidst all of the, the doom and gloom, which hopefully we're in the process of coming out of. And at the same time, artificial intelligence is paving the way for breakthroughs in digital therapeutics and decision support in which academic medical centers play a key part. You'll hear a little bit about this in the following session. Um, Today, as I mentioned, I have Dr. Michael Blum, who's the director of the University of California, San Francisco's Center for Digital Health Innovation and the chief digital transformation officer at UCSF Health. And he has been on the forefront of these changes. So today, join us for a fireside chat as we discuss the flourishing renaissance in digital health. Um, so I welcomed you already, but let's jump right in, Dr. Blum. Let's talk a little bit about some of the historic challenges blocking digital innovation in healthcare. So it's a great place to start. Um, it's a long enough conversation. We could use our whole 25 minutes for that, but um, let me just hit the tops of the waves. Um, so I would think of them in, in a couple buckets. The the one that you have to start with um, in, the, in what's been blocking digital innovation and use of digital technologies in general in healthcare <clears throat> is the gross underinvestment that there's been from healthcare. Um, if you look at how most industries utilize their capital and their capital investments, and then you look at the technology slice of that, um, sadly, healthcare has performed like an old style industrial um, sector. So healthcare has traditionally invested somewhere between one and three percent of their capital into digital technologies. That changed um, significantly out of the High Tech Act in 2009, when healthcare was essentially forced to put in electronic health records um, with huge incentives. There were 30 billion dollars of incentives, which by today's numbers seems like a trivial amount, but back then right. it was it was the you know king's ransom was 30 billion dollars. And that that forced the modernization where um healthcare industry had to put in electronic health records. 
Um, but that even that only temporarily drove up the healthcare spend. It went up to numbers around six, seven, maybe eight percent. Um, but then it kind of dwindled back down to where it's been historically. You can contrast that with you know industries um, like banking, where the spend is well well into the double digits um, of their you know capital and operating budgets. And then you think of high tech industry, software industry, high technology, where frequently their investments are in the you know 20, 30 percent range. Um, so healthcare is grossly under underinvested in the technologies, and that's always caused us to be a laggard. But it's only one of the issues. Um, other issues, which are relatively obvious as well, is the complexity of healthcare. It is really difficult to change out technologies when you have a you know highly complex machine that's running that's got tremendous amount of interdependencies between all of its efforts and the complexity in the sense that you're dealing with life or death events very frequently it's not as though you're working in the consumer industry you know um, banking makes a mistake in one of their technology implementations and they piss off their customers for a little bit but they fix it you know our stakes are much much higher so it's there's a much higher bar to get over to start mucking around in the in the technology portfolio so you've got those two big barriers to change, which should be enough to keep you from changing. So we work our way through this, but then you've got hyper-regulation. You've got the government with tremendous amount of influence. Sometimes, as I said, that can be good. High Tech Act forced a lot of change, but the hyper-regulated environment creates a huge barrier to change at the same time. So, so that's, been, um, you know, that's been an issue historically. The last piece is, is just the culture. It's a very conservative culture, a lot of that because of the high risk profile, but getting people to work out of their box when you talk about things like, we're gonna move fast and break things, or we've gotta do a lot of trials and figure out what works and throw out what doesn't work. Those kinds of phrases that are you know the foundation of startups, the foundation of high technology, they make people very, very nervous in the healthcare space you know, because of the, the risk and the conservatism. All of those added together have made it the pace of progress really, really slow. As you pointed out in the intro, the only thing that's really gotten us moving with towards the more consumer-based digital technologies um, has really been the pandemic. That's forced, it's been a huge forcing function. It's forced the government to allow virtual visits where they had basically been prohibited before. And the last piece I think is, um, and it's what's been a blocker is that Healthcare essentially operates in a very failed marketplace. The consumers haven't had very much choice. It's the only marketplace where the payers are not the people who are directly benefiting from it. So you've got this huge economic mess of a marketplace, not advocating that there is a great answer to it or that things like single payer would be a fix to any of it, but just the brokenness of the marketplace makes the investment very difficult. And it's you know kept us stuck where we are, and until the pandemic, we couldn't make the change into digital transformation. First of all, one of the things you touched on was it is a matter of life and death, and it's one of the reasons why you probably see people like yourself, who is I believe a trained cardiologist, right? So a medical doctor that's in either these academic settings or these startups, because people that try to go that route and don't really understand the system do end up in a difficult place with the FDA and other regulatory bodies. We did talk a little bit about this uh, next question, which is about digital transformation. A lot of this has been caused by the pandemic and how it's changed the way patients access care. So we had a, a great session yesterday. It was with uh, Junaid Bajwa, who you probably know, 
chief medical scientist at Microsoft Research, and then Greg Zabo, who's the VP and global commercial leader of virology and immunology at Merck. And we talked about this very topic. So I'd love to find out a little more about how digital transformation has changed the way patients access care and how has it changed the way physicians can provide care? That's a big question I know, but would love to get your thoughts. Yeah, I, I love that question. That's where I'm spending, you know, much of my working life now is, is in the digital transformation space. Um, I would start by, by stepping back a bit. So, so you're right. So I, I'm a practicing cardiologist, so I get to eat my own dog food. Um, I have to use these tools and I have to, you know, bear the frustration of the patients when they're annoyed with how the tools work. So it's great. So I get to really feel how this stuff is, is playing out in the real world. I think um, digital transformation is, is a big buzzword right now. Um, it is bringing in a huge amount of venture attention and money, and that's all great, desperately needed in the space. But I think it's important to, to tease out digital transformation from use of digital technologies, right? Um, there's been an improvement in the use of digital technologies due to the pandemic. Virtual care is a great example of that. Uh, video visits certainly transformed. I haven't had an in-person ambulatory visit in a year now, um, yet I've seen exactly the same number of patients as I would have seen in the prior year because they've all been on video. In the hospital, obviously a different story, but but it's been a fantastic transition. But that's using a digital technology. That is not digital transformation. Digital transformation requires a rethinking of the way that we do our business, a completely different set of uh, portfolio of tools that we use that are really based on the outcome you're looking for, not solving a project. So digital transformation is um, moving away from a world of, um, I need this tool, creating a project, going and putting in a tool to rethinking your business of what capabilities do I need to run my business? And so instead of saying, well, I need a better website to attract more patients, you'd say, well, I really need the capability to bring in new patients and then the capability to get them into the office and provide all the care. And you would start from there and say, how would I design my, my digital landscape to meet those needs? So it's a little bit of a subtle change, but it's a fundamentally important change because when you just put on, if you think of just digital technologies and you just keep adding on to the pile of technologies that you have, they tend to be very disconnected you'll lose the flow of, in our case, the patient across all the technologies. The patient sees a bunch of silos that they have to navigate and you can never really collect the data. And this is another one of the crucial parts is you digitize the system when you do a digital transformation and you actually instrument each piece of it so you can check on what's going on with the consumer or the patient in this case, and you can find out where you're succeeding and where you're failing. So that happens in a digital transformation. I don't think we've gotten there. I don't think anyone in healthcare has really gotten there despite a lot of talk. We're early on our journey. This will be our first year of really focusing on the transformation and not the new tools. And um, I think we're gonna see, we're gonna see healthcare starting to catch up <clears throat> to what consumers expect. Consumers have been exposed to digital transformations you know, in their lives with Amazon, with banking, with video, their whole entertainment experience has gone through a transformation. Healthcare is just starting on that transformation. Well, it's such an important answer. And having worked in financial services at Fidelity, I saw a similar phenomenon. We had some of the upstarts, this is back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and you had the E-Trades and 
others that came along and basically built a new platform from scratch. They had rethought the system. And we at Fidelity and the Charles Schwab's and others of the world had a hard time because we were built on legacy systems. You had mainframes. And so it was a little bit like, the, do you build a new house or do you do the gut rehab? So I love where you're going on that. It is also a good segue into this next question because we do hear a lot of buzzwords like digital transformation. I think that was a great definition of it. Another buzzword is AI. And I would argue, and I don't think people would push back on this, that artificial intelligence is one of these transformational technologies. I think it got a lot of hype probably too early, particularly in healthcare, but it is something that's coming. So let's talk a little bit about how AI is transforming healthcare. Yeah, it's a, that's another fantastic topic. Spend a lot of my time in AI as well. Um, and I would start by saying it's exactly the same thing that I just said about transformation, right? It's a technology. It can be part of a digital transformation that an organization goes through. It's another you know, arrow in your quiver. It just happens to be a very powerful arrow that's taking down a huge amount of investment dollars right now. Um, but it's important not to get too excited about it because think back and we had the big data revolution, right? Big data was gonna change everything in healthcare and, and it was a big nothing, really. I say that, but it actually created the foundations that we're building AI upon, but it, big data itself didn't do. You know, and the, trend, the change before that was health records. They were gonna revolutionize healthcare and make it all better. And, you know, another platform piece that improved things, but hasn't changed. So AI is gonna be the same thing. AI is gonna bring us tremendous progress and improvements. It's gonna allow us to do things that individual humans can't do themselves, but it's not gonna be an overnight transformation. So there've been um, some great successes already with AI. Um, my group at the Center for Digital Health Innovation worked with GE Healthcare to do AI on imaging. So we developed the ability for um, AI to look at chest X-rays as they're performed and to actually interpret the chest X-rays for some dangerous conditions in the intensive care units. And so you took a process that took hours and hours and was very human dependent, automated it using artificial intelligence, machine learning. And now instantly when a chest X-ray was shot, the machine could tell the technologists, the clinicians, the radiologists, whether there were important things like collapsed lungs or a breathing tube that was out of place, a feeding tube that was out of place, air under the, you know, under the diaphragm where it shouldn't be very dangerous. All those things were known instantly. So great, great progress like that, saving lives all over the world already. At the same time, we've seen many, many failures of artificial intelligence algorithms. Um, we've seen promise very early on of people were gonna have the ability to just take a picture on their iPhone of a skin lesion and know if it was a cancer. And that turned out to not have nearly the accuracy that it was. And it, But it was interesting because it shows one of the challenges of AI is you can build AI algorithms relatively straightforward right now. The technology and the compute power is very available right now. It's one of the amazing things that Google and others did is they democratized these tools. So easy to run tools, easy to operate, you know, take some classes in Python and you can get, get going, you can write algorithms. Then you can get some publicly available data and you can tune your algorithm and train it on that data. And you can create what looks like a highly functioning AI algorithm and a model um, and demonstrate very good performance on that data set. The problem that we've run into is these, um, these 
models generally, they don't generalize across populations. They don't generalize outside of the setting that they were created in. And we ran into this a little bit when we were working on our product, our projects with GE, was we developed these algorithms that were very accurate at determining these clinical conditions and recognizing them using the data set that we had developed them on, using high-end academic center quality chest x-rays, using you know population of the San Francisco Bay Area. But when you right. got outside of that, you had to generalize to other parts of the world, to different ethnicities, different socioeconomic populations, different disease entities, they weren't nearly as accurate. So we had to go and get additional data. And that's one of the things that people are learning now about AI is AI is only as good, the model is only as good as the data that it was developed on. Initially, people thought that meant just high quality data and you had to have the right number of what you were looking for and the right number of controls, but it's not. It's gotta be a much more heterogeneous set of data that represents the eventual population that the AI, AI is gonna have to work on. So that's one of the huge challenges to AI is access to data. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But the other question point um, that's worth making is AI isn't just about really cool clinical tools. It's not about you know the magic man in the box giving you answers to clinical problems. Definitely one of the exciting pieces of it. But the place where we're seeing AI have the most immediate impact is in automation of very manual tasks, getting people out of having to do things that is time consuming for them that the AI can do much more quickly. So it's having impact on the finance side, on the administrative side of healthcare already, automating scheduling, getting patients to the right places more quickly. Those pieces, as always, will happen earlier and um, more straightforward than doing the actual clinical work. That's a good one. I, I do want to dig into something you touched on. And so there's the sort of inherent bias with the data, but also the development of these AI systems. And I think we've heard a lot about that. And so I want to touch on that. And then I have one question from the audience that I really like, and then we'll wrap up. But talk about how we sort of combat developers, particularly if they're developing for you know audiences that don't include BIPOC or other populations. How do we combat that and make sure that that's not an issue? Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a complicated issue, more so than you would think, and it's a subject of a lot of research right now. Um, part of it is that where I was, you know, what I was touching on before, that you've got to have data that doesn't have bias built into it. And sadly, the vast majority of healthcare data has some intrinsic bias built into it because of the way the whole healthcare system grew up and the disparities that are inherent in where the care is delivered, what setting, you know, what kind of health center you're getting data in and the geography of where they are and the population. So because of all those factors, the data that, that exists in those centers has bias built into it, not necessarily you know, intentional bias, but it's just got bias relative to the totality of data that we would need. So um, it, it requires people to be incredibly thoughtful upfront to ensure that they have a very broad spectrum of data, a very broad spectrum of patients and socioeconomic groups and ethnicities, um, all, all included in the data sets that they're developing the AI. Again, the AI can only know what it's seen previously. It doesn't yet have the ability to abstract to things that it's never seen. Um, it can do things that it's seen rarely, and it can tell you what fits and doesn't fit in the data set, but trying to get, trying to get the, you know, the responses, if you've only shown it a very narrow slice, it's gonna have the inherent bias that's built into the data. So 
people need to be recognizing that and you need to be working to make sure that the, the training and the validation of the models um, includes the ability to see other data, um, other individuals, so it will recognize them. So you don't build in the same biases. You could do, you could have two errors. One is just allowing the data to inherently build in the same bias that already exists in the system, or even worse, you could narrow the data set because a certain population of patients agreed to be part of a trial, and then it would only know what to do with those patients. So it requires a tremendous amount of attention. The good news is that with all the attention being paid on you know, the um, racial disparities, how um, certain underserved populations are doing much worse in the pandemic, has highlighted it to the point where people are thinking about this as they're developing these algorithms. But there's more work to do because the data inherently struggles on the underlying data to be inclusive. And that's gonna be one of the big challenges as we go forward. Well, thank you for covering that. I do wanna take us a little off script because there's a great question that came in from the audience. And I know I said I wasn't gonna take them, but I couldn't not do this one. I think we rely so much on the technology and thinking that's gonna be the solve. And so the question is, we talk a lot about innovation and practice. We don't often hear about tech, um, you know, whether it can change medical education. So as a physician, how do you see medical training changing in response to tech as a guy that actually has both of those skill sets? What can you tell your peers and what do we need to do better on that front? Yeah, I, I love that question. Um, we're, you know, for years we've been rethinking the curriculum at UCSF and thinking about how does technology need to be included in the training? And, you know, initially that was, okay, we need to expose students to electronic health records much earlier so they can become very facile. And then the questions came up of, well, how much technology do they really need to understand? Do they need to be able to just write queries so they can ask their own questions to the system? And then it became, well, do they actually need to be able to know how to program in Python to understand machine learning and to be able to write these systems themselves? I think um, the training isn't going to get to that point. We're not going to make everyone who comes into, into healthcare have to be an engineer or computer scientist. That's just not reasonable. But um, the thinking about digital technologies, the understanding the foundations and how they are now a major part of the system is going to be part of the education. It already is. Our curriculum includes those kinds of exposures. You know, simulation labs, the ability to do some programming are going to be super important pieces of it. But at the same time, you don't want to say, well, if you can't do those, if you can't be a programmer, you can't be in healthcare. That's kind of ridiculous as well. But the, the technologies are becoming more and more a fundamental part of how we deliver care. And so, you know, the students need to be trained in how do you use those technologies. And we're encouraging a whole new group. It's, you know, there's, there's biomedical engineering, which used to be developing new drugs, new technologies, new biotech. There is a whole evolving space of new digital technologies, that marriage between how do we use those technologies, how do we develop them, and how do we avoid all these biases? How do we avoid all these problems we've stumbled over for the last two, three decades in technology by having people who grow up as that is their career path, not bolting it on as they go through? So you know, long way of saying the students are going to be much more facile. They're going to have much more training in digital technology than we ever have. And they're going to be branches of medicine that are specifically focused on how to use and how do you build these technologies. Well, thank you so much for answering that. Thank you for a engaging conversation. I wish we could take this another half hour, 45 minutes. Uh, but, you know, it, this was a great taste. We'll do another one of these at some point in time. We're now going to pivot to some lighter questions. These are questions that I ask all of my guests.
Uh, the first one that I've started doing during the pandemic is you could have one wish and one wish only. What would it be and why? Well, I, I think there is only one wish in the setting of what we've been going through for the last year, and that's for this to come to a, a speedy closure. I think that the impact on on everyone globally has been so dramatic and um, I, you don't talk to anyone these days you know, we're a year into it who's not saying when is this going to be over we've got a light at the end of the tunnel now with vaccines going pretty um, pretty strongly and the wish is clearly for this to end and for us to get back to a more normal life as we were beforehand that is a very logical wish and uh, I think the good news is we can see it coming true right hopefully sooner rather than later as vaccines roll out one of the things that we've covered uh during a little bit during our session and during our overall south by southwest activities is COVID vaccine confidence and so fingers crossed the last one is a little bit of a, a fun question uh, i've been asking this for three years i'm always interested in the answers a little bit surprised a lot of times uh it's you're on a proverbial deserted island you can only take one album with you. Don't worry about how the technology works. Uh, which album would you choose? So that, that's really a you know fascinating question because the first thing that comes to mind is I'm on a desert island. You know, how do I have electricity? Um, but okay, we'll suspend disbelief a little bit. And then I said, um, all right, well, I'm going to be a little bit more clever than my first answer, and I'm going to say I would actually take my family photo album with me so I could you know, see and virtually be with my family. Um, but then I know you'd say that's cheating. We want a real music album. And I think I would say I want to bring an album that's on the longer side. So maybe I get a little less bored on it. So I'm thinking my favorite longer albums. And I ended up with Pink Floyd's The Wall. Um, you know, it's got some hope in it. It's got a lot of craziness in it. Um, I grew up listening to it. So I'd have to settle with that if I wasn't that my second choice i'd probably bring uh, bruce springsteen's born to run with me keep me somewhat sane well i have to say i'm not surprised uh and i did not tell you that you could not bring a photo album so you're the first person actually <laughs> to bring that up so uh extra points for cleverness and it's funny i was just listening to the wall the other day i was putting together a bed for my son and it was one of those things where i knew it was going to be a few hours and so it was just a nice <laughs> way to turn it on and, and set it and forget it. So a great choice and I agree with you, lots of moods there. Um, Bruce is also a good backup. So with that, I'd like to thank you again for joining us today. I've been with Dr. Michael Blum, who's the director of the University of California, San Francisco Center for Digital Health Innovation and Chief Digital Transformation Officer at UCSF Health. Uh, Dr. Blum, this has been a true pleasure. I'm Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry and the host of the What's Know podcast show. Thank you so much, Dr. Blum. Thank you, Aaron. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at whogroup.com slash whattoknow.